welcome to Directly Correct, a People English podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, Richard Rosen. Well, I think you said, Richard, that this is your first podcast, right? It is. I have listened to thousands of podcasts, and I owe a lot of my career to podcasts, but I have never participated in one. So I'm super excited for this. <laughs> well, well, you see what it's like on the other side of the table, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, do the two of you know each other? No. I don't think we met. I'm, I'm super excited to meet you, Scott. I'm excited to meet you, too. It's a pleasure. Uh, have you been to PSYOP many times? I have not. And I have a weird relationship with PSYOP because I feel like it's a family reunion that I'm not exactly invited <laughs> to as an MBA. Yeah, <laughs> I, I totally get that. And PSYOP actually ought to do a better job of inviting other fields because we could really use an injection. It seems like a ton of fun, though, too. And it's also like, like, I don't want to rain on somebody else's parade by because it seems like everyone gets together, like the PSYOP folk have their regular connect. And but it seems like a ton of fun, too. So I I haven't been yet, but I'd love to someday. It is a ton of fun, but it is also definitely a a large uh, motivating factor is to go see old colleagues. Yeah, definitely. Well, and much like a family, there are black sheep of the family. (laughs) <laughs> of which i think scott and i are somewhat so yeah what? yeah i don't know that's a fine place to be but no, i it's like, like uh scott i feel like i know you because i binge watched all the podcasts leading up to this so oh wow. like a one directional friendship where I, I know a little bit more about you so we'll we'll see if that comes to test i i wonder how many people have this sort of orientation with us because like cole and i talk quite frequently but you know, we don't really have a good feedback mechanism to get interaction with, you know, people that actually listen. And I'm actually like embarrassed by the reaction we get externally. Like, so I don't even really pay attention to, I don't really know how many people listen, uh, yeah. but I, I am super excited when Cole interacts with a lot more people externally and he will tell me like, oh, these four or 10 people that they listen and they love this, et cetera. It, it's, it's really I, I, humbling and embarrassing. I find it anyway. Yeah, I've, I've had two two interactions. Um, one, I, had, I met our first fan when I was at the HR Tech Conference in Las Vegas. And I was talking to someone in the hallway, and this person came up to me. They go, oh, you're Cole Napper. And I said, yes. And they said, I listen to your podcast. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And then they walked off. <laughs> I didn't even catch their name, don't know who they are. And I was like, oh, that's wild. And then when I was up in Boston um, last week for the Pafal event, I had three or four people who I actually kind of knew who they were, but like I didn't know them. And they're like, oh, yeah, I listen to your podcast. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And I was telling Scott, I was like, Scott, you got to get out more, man. Like we're, <laughs> we're, we're becoming, you know, semi-famous in the community. I, I think the next sign up will be fun for that because y'all, y'all will get some attention there. But it, it is weird, though, Scott. I, I identify with that because like you put content out on the Internet it's like shouting into the void and then you have no idea what happens. Like at the Pafal event in New York, someone came up with me and they're like, yeah, you're, I read your article. It came out years ago. And one, I felt like very old, but two, I felt like humbled a little bit because like they read something that I wrote, mm-hmm. which feels a little crazy. It's like you put it out there and you just don't know what happens to it. Yeah. You really don't know what kind of influence you have. Uh, you've written quite a bit. Uh, I guess oh, yeah. we can go ahead and get into this. Uh, most notably, the uh, service first platform model in PA uh, is really fascinating sort of take on uh, the service delivery model. Uh, it's a terrible question, but do you want to like expand on that? <laughs> Tell us a little <laughs> bit about this. Sure, sure. No, that's a funny or here, like, Cole, Cole's about to launch in here. What are you about to say, Cole? Well, like, I, I, 
to just to kind of build on Scott's question yeah. is back when you wrote it, I don't think you had had the chance to implement it as a leader yeah. of PA. And I think you've had the chance to do that since then. So I wanted to hear, did it work? Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, like <laughs> talk about that. Yeah, it's been fun. So I, I think that article, when it came out, I, I won't forget, David Green said something like, a long but useful read, I think is what he called it, which is <laughs> very true. It's high very praise, long. high praise. Yeah, it was, it was. And I, I appreciated it. And uh, I appreciate everybody that read the whole thing because it, it, it gets long. So it was this kind of like something I started seeing in the market, something I started expanding on, something I was ex- interested in like getting involved in. And I had the chance to uh, really see it implemented at Nike and then implement it myself at Argo. We were going after builds that were mm-hmm. very similar here. The Nike story is its own kind of story, maybe maybe a different day, different podcast. Uh, go get Tony for that one. Um, but we did a lot of the build there where we had kind of like a, a data foundations team. We had data engineers, software engineers, solutions team, and kind of built up that same model. At Argo, the pitch was really to kind of build it uh, from scratch in, the, in that shape. And so really we had, um, I kind of expanded on this, probably an article that's coming out at some point, but there, there were sort of four functions we had. We had process, tech, data, and analytics. And the neat thing about that, it, it was basically a vertically integrated people analytics team where we had, you get your processes right, your technology actually works. You get your technology right, you actually get the data out that you need. You get the data out, you can do the analytics to go back and fix your processes or do whatever mm-hmm. else you need to do. So it was this, um, we built it sort of in that mindset, but some of the key points I think is we, we did not, we deliberately did not build any analytics business partners. And um, shout out to the analytics business partners that are out there. I love you all. You're doing great work. I really think you should be HRBPs uh, and just stop doing their work for them. Thank you. Thank so I'll, you I'll for say that. saying that. Because <laughs> uh, it's kind of a two-in-a-box model right now where I think the HRBPs are getting the benefit of it. Um, so we, we deliberately did not build AVPs on our team and instead decided to go after a education and build of the HRBPs. And we had a really good reaction to that. So, I mean, I, I can't say where it went from there because the, the company's no more. Um, but we, we had a ton of fun building. We were getting off the ground, getting things moving. And all signs were pointing to success. Well, talk to me about, so I, I got to come back to this. I'm sorry. Yeah, the, yeah. This is like an ax I have to grind. Oh, it's a big one. <laughs> I, I put it, so I wrote an article in about building a people analytics team. And I had a whole section in there about why people, in, people analytics business partners are wasteful. I actually took it out when I republished it because I was like, I think it just made people <laughs> angry. But why like i'm not attacking yeah. the human beings in those roles what i am attacking is the strategy which is hr business partners if they're actually a business partner if they're living up to their name you they should be doing this type of work and if you create a duplicative role that's just wasteful for companies that i guess can afford that and it seems like that's becoming less and less by the day given the context of all the layoffs that are going on at the companies that do have these type of roles well how is it duplicative yeah what you typically see is like an HRBP structure where they have, they partner off with each line of business with like a head of HRBPs, senior HRBPs, the junior, et cetera, et cetera. There. The ADP role, a lot of times you'll see like a head of analytics business partners that pairs off with that head of HRBPs. And then they may have direct reports that pair off with each of that direct reports on the HRBP side. Mm-hmm. And so what ends up happening is you have the HRBP doing their, their day job, but then for anything data related or consulting related to data or analytical they kind of pull in their ABP who helps them with that work. And I, I'm, I know I'm definitely like diminishing it to a large degree, which is not fair to anybody in either one of those roles. But one of the tough things that happens, you end up with basically two bodies in a box to do the job of a strategic HR partner. 
And you have this analytics body and you have this people-people body. And early stage in people analytics, I think that made a lot of sense because the people-people were very people-people and the analytics people were very analytics and you kind of needed them both in the same box. I think in the past 10 years, we've seen HRBPs really lean in a little bit to try to become more analytical or they want to be, or they know they have to be. And I think the analytics business partners have realized they need to be more people-people to get things done. So they've Mm -hmm. sort of started merging together into similar roles. And so the the idea behind not having analytics business partners is not giving the HRBPs support directly, but giving them educational support and helping them with their transition to becoming more analytical and letting them kind of lean into that space a little bit more. Because you don't don't see analytics business partners in finance or marketing or many other places. So it's an interesting setup within HR. I feel better now that we've gotten to discuss this. Thank you for (laughs) giving me the opportunity, Richard. Well, I'll say too, I I was an HRBP back in the day. When I was at Citibank, I was an HRBP for the, the retail bank. I think I did some of my best people analytics work as an HRBP. Because as an HRBP, I was able to clear the board, bring in my analytics team, which was mostly statisticians, help them work on projects, but then really partner with the business to make sure we got a clear experiment with a before, a middle, and an after. And it's stuff like that. Like You really need, this is that, that article I wrote on kind of buy side, sell side people analytics. The, the thought I'm getting at there is like, you've got to have good buyers of people analytics within the business. And that's right. I think the ABPs eventually will just become the HRBPs of the future. Can, can you explain that real quick for like non-finance yeah. oriented people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it, I don't know if it's a, I, I definitely stole the terms from finance. I don't know if it, it plays directly to the way they use it. But the idea was um, your analytics team is essentially selling analytics. They sell the consulting, they sell the data, they sell the products to their clients. And the buyers of those products have to be informed, thoughtful buyers. And so if any analytics team that has a really good HRVP knows this feeling of like, when you have a buyer that really knows what they're talking about, knows how to purchase, knows how to think about analytics and can engage with the team in the right way, you can do so much more. When your buyers are under-informed about what this is, what they can do with it, what they need, you get a lot of, uh, it's just, it's a tough marketplace then. So I, I think the, the idea of how do we educate our buyers within the function is as important as selling really good people analytics, if not more important in a lot of places. Well, let me let me do it just just for a quick yeah. kind of public service announcement here for those of the people who listen to the podcast who don't know who you are. Um, uh, Probably Richard, should have started you, there, right? We go yeah, right in. I, I, no, I, I believe you, you started out your career, Richard, a, a, in a nonprofit. I one of the things I'm most impressed about you by, and I actually want to talk about this in a second, is yeah. how active in the community you are in terms of promoting job, you know, jobs that are out there, meetups that are going on, writing articles, posting and all of that. And I, I'll honestly say I've, I've copied you in a large extent. And so I owe a lot of what I do to you. And I, I just wanted to say that publicly, but you've also been a part of people analytics teams at Facebook, Uber, Nike, most recently at Argo AI. And we can talk about how you built that function up uh, and get into that further if you like. And, you know, I, I'm just really excited that you're here, but I want to come back to this, this component of promoting the community and and building a community and creating a, kind of a there there what was what was your motivation for doing that because you were very early to it and I, I wanted to commend you for doing it yeah it's a good question I think um so I remember my first meetup I went to was in New York City the the Stella Lupashore Jeremy Shapiro uh, New York City people analytics meetup and I was at Citibank at the time and I, I just come out of an MBA program where I was real fired up about people analytics and 
that's not really typical for an MBA program. And so I, I was at Citibank, really fired up about data, really fired up about HR, trying to find my people. And I go into this meetup and I remember getting there and being like, ah, these are, these are my people. Like they don't ask me what I'm doing. They don't ask me why I'm doing it. They're just really excited about it too. And so that, that feeling was just tremendous. And so um, when I was in New York, I participated there as much as I could. I got out to California. I was like, there's got to be a ton of these things going on in California. These people out here are, are really wild about people analytics. I get out there and there, there wasn't a meetup in the Bay Area. And so I, I started one and we, we got that off the ground. And it was, um, I think this idea of community within the people analytics space is a bit unique because you have these people that care about people and like data. And if you only like one of those two things, you're going to go somewhere else. If you only like data and analytics, you can get paid more going other places. So you get this kind of like trap where you find this like people who care about people and people who like data and they like hanging out and they like talking to each other. And I, I just, I've really thrived with the community. And so I try to give back as much as I can, wherever I can uh, to, to help out. Yeah. I think this is a common theme uh, on people we've had as guests thus far. It's like, people that really love data and they're really ready to help out others, or at least a, a very uh, humanistic focus. How, how did you get into the people in space from an MBA? Was it just working through all these different uh, finance, et cetera, and just found your way over? Yeah, you know, it, uh, so my background way back when was sociology. Loved sociology. How and why do people come together? That's been a real driving force for me in my career is I, I want to study that, learn about it, how do communities happen? Can't get enough of that. It's in your and blood. Was, it's in your DNA, essentially. Yeah, yeah. It's like that, that's what I get fired up about. And I, I think the um, when I was working in nonprofit, I'm like, how do I learn about sociology in my day job? How do I get interested in people? How can I eventually get paid for that? And I think there was this moment where, like, if I had a really good like I was like mentor in my life, I might have gone that direction. I, I just <laughs> didn't know anything about it. And so I went to the MBA thinking, okay, like it's they have a course focused in HR. I can take some other areas. And I really crafted a people analytics journey through the MBA. So took marketing analytics, healthcare analytics, uh, some data science courses from the other schools and kind of forced it to work. And at the time we, we had one of the earliest kind of talent analytics classes. So I actually took a, a course in this, which was kind of cool at the time. I know a lot of other people haven't had that opportunity. There's, there's more and more courses like that popping up now, which is fascinating to see. And so, yeah, I, I was very deliberate about the MBA to go after it. Might have been easier doing a IOSec or IO sociology, but um, th this was my path. Well, let, let's um, let's kind of switch gears here for a second, yeah. Richard, if you don't mind. One of the things that is kind of a a hot topic right now, and and we can talk about it to your heart's content, or we can gloss over it a little bit. But I, I'm starting to feel like our podcast is like a bad luck charm for people because <laughs> we, we we had Ben Taylor on and he was in between jobs yeah. last week we recorded with it hasn't been launched yet but we recorded with RJ who's in between oh, yeah. jobs and now we're talking to you who's in between jobs and so I feel like we might be the angel of death for some people and so you know future podcast guests beware but can you can you talk at all about you know the role people analytics plays in the current environment that we're going through as a society with like you know the economic indicators and all of that oh man yeah i thought you were going a different direction you made like a left turn there at the last minute the, oh, um, sorry no 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 it's good it's good and, and shout out to rj I'm, I'm excited to hear that one too he's, he's a good friend good mentor can't get enough of him and um yeah, i'm excited for that one yeah, yeah. I, I think the we saw a real boost in people analytics teams coming in and coming out of the pandemic 
this idea of like when everyone was sent home and they realized that like, oh, we don't know what productivity is and we don't know what performance is. We never actually knew, but we just got by by right. all in the office together. And now we need to actually figure it out for the first time. I think that's where people analytics team saw a real boost. And they really got brought to the table in a different way to kind of talk about people. And I think we are still in a really people-oriented market, which is like, it's an incredibly tight job market still, despite some really high-profile layoffs or recession-related activity. It's still incredibly hard to find the right people and bring them in and try to keep them. And I think that CEOs have a different appreciation now. I, I will say one, one of the reasons I went to Argo was it was actually the, the CEO and president who were excited about people in analytics. To me, really? that was such a selling point. And, and the, the head of HR was tremendous too, just, just truly a tremendous team. How, how did was, they even know about it just out of curiosity? Yeah, it, it was, uh, they were from former companies that had people analytics teams, which okay. again is this moment where I think we're going to see this next evolution of leadership really truly expect this especially leaders that are coming from the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Microsofts, which is where leaders are being developed today that spin out and spin off to these different companies. They're expecting a baseline of people in analytics, which is much higher than uh, a typical company can provide. So I, I think we're in this interesting moment coming into uh, a lot of people-related questions where we have a function being developed to go after people-related questions. And it's a great time to be in people analytics. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I'll pivot to Scott just after this, but one of the things that I wanted to make sure we had a chance to do and why I kind of teed up the question that way is because I know it's not just you. You've got a whole team of like super talented people that it would be really great if another organization went and picked up some of those talented individuals. So I don't know. Do you want to talk about that at all, Richard? I would love to. Yeah, I, completely. We, we built a really fantastic team. It was we were high, like just hitting our stride on a lot of different areas. Uh, tremendous IO psych talent, tremendous data talent. Uh, we, we had a one model in, instance up and running in just a couple months that had all of our data cleaned, organized. We got our finance data talking to our HR data with our project team. I mean, it was just tremendous. So um, I, I put a post out there that had everybody on my team. Uh, I tagged in a bunch more people from the Argo team. Just, just for, for historical sense of this podcast, I'd say, hey, go, go take a look at LinkedIn. And um, if, you, if you need people analytics talent right now, you've got a chance to pick up a whole team wholesale. Because uh, we loved working together too, but I, I'm I'm excited to see where they go next. I'm really fired up for that, and uh, it's one of these diasporas. The people analytics community is small. We, we'll all stay in touch. We'll all work together again someday. I'm I'm sure of it. I love this idea. If like a company that wanted to stand up a people analytics function could just grab an entire intact team that already knows each yeah. other, has worked together, they're all you know highly skilled, etc., and it's just rare. parachute them right into an organization. <laughs> It'd be very similar if, uh, I don't know, Facebook were to acquire, I don't know if Facebook's acquiring anybody right now, <laughs> quite literally, but if they were to acquire some sort of uh, company and just drop them right in because they love their technology, it'd be this exact same thing for your group. Yeah, and a, and a shout out to the, the Twitter and the Facebook team too, because I know they both had uh, some significant people analytics team related layoffs too. So be, be on the lookout, Argo AI, Twitter, Facebook teams, and um, if anyone else is in the similar situation, please reach out. I'd love to broadcast you too. We'll definitely provide your uh, information uh, in the show notes. But I mean, like, as you, as you mentioned, uh, we're coming out of this pandemic and things have changed. Uh, organizations are getting more data driven. You know, they want these people in next functions. Where, where's this going to go in the next five to 10 years? That's an exciting one. It so is exciting. I think there's something happening here, which is an extension of that platform operating model, where I think the vendors are going to eat the floor. 
I, I think the vendors are really going to come in to take over a lot of the basics and a lot of the scaled stuff that we do as people analytics teams. And I'm not sure of a future where that doesn't happen. Because I, I can't picture the Fortune 1000 each having a five-person people analytics team and each having a data engineer who cares about people. Data engineers are very hard to find. And mm -hmm. people-related data engineers are incredibly hard to find. I think these vendors that centralize, collect, standardize data are going to be the future of the team or people analytics. If it was for other functions, I think you could maybe see more homegrown stuff. But like being really honest about it, HR gets fed last. If you get a data engineer into the company and you really fight to get them into HR, like kudos to you for making that fight happen. Because uh, every part of the business needs a data engineer right now. And yes. it's something we said at Argo was, if we can get a data engineer, I want them working on the cars. I, I don't want them on the HR team because they're so hard to find. So that, that's where I think these scale vendors are going to really come in and start to develop the floor and work their way upwards. And people analytics teams will work their way upwards as well, kind of upwards the chain being kind of like data, reporting, solutions, research, qualitative, upwards north from there. So I, yeah. Is, I, is, I, is that the floor, the data reporting, all this sort yeah, of stuff that, that vendors can come in? I, I think that's where one of the things that people don't recognize enough is that data architecture and data extraction is so critical. I've seen so many teams not nail data extraction, and that leads to downstream issues with, I can't understand my attrition. Because mm -hmm. getting the data out of these big systems like the Workdays, the SAPs, the Oracles, you name it, um, is a tremendous amount of work. And to have to do that as a one-off people analytics team is just, I, I can't make the math work to make that make sense. So I've been a huge advocate for the build uh, for a very long time. So I, I think the next five to 10 years, we're going to see more and more vendor supported support for people analytics teams. I couldn't agree more, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> I see Cole smiling over here the whole time. <laughs> I mean, I've actually been saying this at conferences recently is that, yeah. you know, it's impossible to find data engineers and it's, it's a bad equation because if they will work at HR, they're the most expensive, but least quality talent data engineer. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it, a, if you can get one, it's usually because they want to build something. Nobody wants to maintain HR systems. No. Nobody. Not even HR, no one wants to maintain HR systems. And so I, I just can't see that being an in-house activity that people do for much longer. Well, why, why is that? Why, why do people not want to maintain HR systems? Is it just uh, boring I, or is it because, like, I have, I have thoughts on it. I'll, I'll let you yeah. chime in. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're hitting on it. I think building something new and exciting and going from zero to one is, is exciting. I mean, maintaining mm -hmm. HR systems is like making sure all the data feed is governed correctly and things are staying up, up to date and staying online. It's a very like kind of routine, thankless, uh, frankly, like, like low priority job for a lot of companies. It's tough. It's, I, I and, think... I, and I have worked with some of the most tremendous data engineers. So I, there's a couple out there that are just like, hold on to them so tight. If you have them, if you have someone in people analytics, going to data engineering, <laughs> oh, yeah. like give them a pat on the back, say thank you and just praise them. Uh, because the ones that are in it are just tremendous. And the ones that really care about it are out of this world. They're just incredibly hard to find. I, I think the thankless aspect is like the really yeah. key there. It's like you don't get promoted for making sure that the lights stay on, right? Yeah. You get promoted for building the cool products, et cetera. And Steve Jobs, I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this up, but it's like you know directionally correct. He had this uh, uh, viewpoint that essentially uh, a company starts out, they're they're inventing, and people really want to work there, right? And over time, you get uh, more salesy, more marketing, more bureaucracy, this sort of stuff. And the actual innovation kind of subsides to the point where 
all the cool data engineers and these sort of folks don't want to work there anymore. And the company essentially starts mm, at best stagnate, if not start declining and dying. Yeah. Uh, and I don't have a point there. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great example in it. I think you can fight that by having the kind of the Sierra one model agnostic, different teams like that, that hire data engineers that bring them in and then put them on the main product and they're working front stage. And it's like, it's a really exciting place to be. And um, I, I think that's always going to win out for the people that want to stay in HR, that want to support people that do data engineering. Um, being at those vendors seems, seems exciting. Well, hey, Richard, we're, we're thinking about, we're, we're always trying to experiment with new and fun things on the podcast. Scott came up with some rapid fire questions. Okay. You want to try it out? Let's do it. I mean, this is a high likelihood of being cut. So nothing, <laughs> no, no, no wrong answers. And Cole can chime in too if he wants. But uh, we'll, we'll try a little rapid fire. Cool. Okay, Richard, you ready? I'm ready. Okay, uh, IPA or light beer? <laughs> uh, light beer. IPA is light beer. people who like jalapenos. Or very very spicy stuff. Those are the IPA people. There, I don't know who they're trying to prove things to. Go with light beers. Light beer. Okay. Uh, when the smoke detector is uh, beeping and like the battery is dying, do you even notice, or does it drive you nuts? Oh, I've I've got a. I'll try to be quick about this. I have a horror story with fire alarms. Uh, my fire alarm actually says out loud which room that it's in, and then it shuts fire, and then they actually are all connected. So I have I have. 13 fire alarms, because my, my dad is very cautious, and he, he advised me to put in one in every single corner of the house. So when they go off, they all start chanting, slowly but surely, they all connect to each other through radio, <laughs> and they all chant fire. And it's, it's one of the most horrifying things. It happened once where my, my son's humidifier was going off too much, and the whole house just yelled fire at us for a couple minutes. So um, I replaced the batteries right away, because that's, that's one of the most terrifying moments of my life. Maybe there's an alternate universe where like Gen Z like sees this like fire alarm and like, like oh yeah, fire. It's awesome, right? <laughs> fire. Yeah. So, so, to, so to answer the rapid fire, it doesn't sound like it bothered you at all, Richard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if you're going to go to a concert, would you rather go see one in an arena or at a coffee shop or like a small club? I'll go coffee shop, but I think with concert i don't go to concerts i just haven't gone to many and I, I like music but i get as fired up about people analytics conferences as most people do about Lollapalooza. and so i'm looking forward to the pathals coming back and the big conferences coming back because uh, I, I get fired up about that i'm sure the people listening to this podcast are some of them are in that same boat i know cole is uh to talk about who's going on <laughs> where but uh yeah coffee shop over concert venue because the the parking and the weights would be too much for me Okay. Are, are you more of a mediator or more of a negotiator? What's the difference? I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll make up the difference. I think I, I'm a middle child, so I would go with mediator both because it sounds like middle, but also I, I think you kind of have to like find common ground as a sibling and within teams. And I think mediators yeah. help kind of get you to common ground. Negotiators are like one side wins or the other. That's, that's my quick definition. Yeah, I would agree with that. Mediator would be more perhaps agreeable, probably opposite ends of the agreeableness scale or different ends anyway. Okay, last one. Pitbull or Madonna? <laughs> uh, I'll go with Madonna. The material girl. Material girl, all the way. <laughs> okay, Cole, we, we, need, we need these from you rapid fire yeah. too. Light yeah, beer, I was IPA. like, I to hear these. 
Well, as we're going through this, I'm like, I was super interested before answering the rapid fire, but as you were asking, I was like, I don't know. <laughs> oh, you're you're in too deep now, man. Well, so I I can't remember all of them. I remember the first one was uh, the beer. So I, yeah. I definitely like IPAs. Um, IPA can't guy. drink them much anymore. Trying to lay off the you know that kind of stuff to keep my weight down. But uh, yeah, definitely the IPAs. What was the second one, Scott? Uh, smoke detector. Does it drive you nuts? It drives my wife nuts. And uh, therefore, I need to change them. But it, I could live for months <laughs> with it going off. You are an insane person. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll be on calls with people and I'll hear, like, their smoke detector going off in the background, like, on a Zoom call. It's like that every, like, 43 seconds. Like, beeps. Like, does that... <laughs> like, where, where are you? It's like, well, I'm in my bedroom. It's like, this goes off all night? It doesn't even bother you? That's insane. Okay, uh, you want to go to a concert in an arena or a coffee shop? Uh, definitely the, the coffee shop. Actually, when I was in high school, I played in a band in coffee shops, and that was a lot of fun. So, yeah. What was, uh, the, what was the best song you played? None. None of them were good. We, <laughs> it was kind of like this podcast where it was only for people who were fans of the genre, <laughs> not that were actually any good. <laughs> what was the genre? Monroe? Just noise metal. Oh, it was it was definitely Monroe pop punk emo screamo hardcore music. Amazing. Three three chords in the truth, man. That's all you need. To oh, for sure. One of uh, actually, I'll I'll go on the side here. One of our fans keeps requesting because uh, we share this emo ness in common that we have like an emo <laughs> segment on here. So I guess this will this will have to suffice. <laughs> Well, I mean, what what would that mean? Like, we got a bunch of layoffs going on right now. Like, what, what does that uh, just, mean? Just you know, like literally talking about all emo bands. That's what they wanted. Oh, oh, quite literally, emo band. Who, uh, like My Chemical uh, Romance or something like that. It's a Gordon and Sias song. They they write the books about biopsych leadership for uh, cartoons. So they they're they're phenomenal. They they've written a couple articles and papers that take like Avatar. And then take all the IOSEC leadership lessons from Avatar and turn it into uh, articles and papers and books. They, they did a couple on the Avengers too. I'll, 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 we'll put them in the show notes. I'll, uh, yeah. I'll send their links over. But um, yeah, they, they do tremendous work. So similarly, I think you could do an emo band. You walk through the lyrics, you pull out the IOSEC goodness, and uh, you talk through it. That, that's I mean, wild. That is, so like, that's way more heady than where I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> so, so these guys like break down like. Uh... Oh, we're we're seeing a lot of servant leadership, or we're seeing like some path goal sort of. Yeah, no, it's it's cool work, and I, I think they do it because it's accessible and it's interesting and it catches eyes and like anything you do to get uh, undergrads excited about it too. I'm sure it plays a part. Uh, but I know they went really deep on Avatar: The Last Airbender and the leadership lessons from. <laughs> so I, yeah, well, I'm I'm excited to share that with you both. You haven't seen it. I'm gonna check that out. That sounds wildly fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Shoot that over, Richard. We'll do. Uh, Cole's a negotiator. He's not a mediator. I already know this. Yeah, for sure. Not even close. For sure. But I really don't know if you're more Pitbull or Madonna. I really don't. I, when you first started asking the question, I thought you were asking about dogs. And I was like, oh, I love Pitbulls. <laughs> They're great. So I guess I'll go Pitbull just for that reason. And I'm not particularly fond of either of those artists. Good question, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to join the nerdery, Richard? I would be, I would be honored. To join the Cole, Cole looks mortified right now. This is fantastic. I love it so much. Uh, 
Well, let's go to the nerdery. Okay. Uh, it's that time of year again where someone comes out with a new meta-analysis that says the old one didn't correct for the proper things, etc. This one's uh, from Paul Sackett and crew, and essentially they uh, uh, correct the meta-analysis for various uh, range restrictions, etc. I mean, overall, they're finding that the validity estimates are about, you know, 0.1 to 0.2 lower than previous. Meta-analysis of what, Scott? What are they analyzing? They are meta-analyzing meta uh, selection practices and how they relate to future job performance. Got it, got it. Thank you. But overall, they're finding that the validity coefficients are about like 0.1 to 0.2 lower than previously reported, which actually sounds about right because we're not really that good. But they have provided a really interesting table here, which essentially shows the new rank of these various uh, uh, selection practices. And at the very top, what do you think it is? Well, I Anybody? can see it, but do you want yeah. me to yeah, what sure. I would have thought I'm trying it was? to play radio here, dude. <laughs> I, I would guess I would guess structured interviews. That's a very good guess, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> As I'm looking at it here. It was uh it was exciting to take a look at this one because what jumped in my head was of all these things that are on here, the only one on the resume is job experiencing years. Mm -hmm. And I was like, the only tool we have for like submitting who we are and what we're doing. Like that's universally known is like this resume submission. And um, it's just a terrible predictor of if someone's good at a job. So I, I, I just was taking that back and chewing on that. Like how could we redesign in a resume? And I'm sure there's a million HR tech companies thinking about working on this too. But um, yeah, it's just disappointing that job experience in years is still such a focus for so many assessment teams. You, yeah. why, why is that the case? Why, why would job experience in years not be more predictive than essentially it's fine in damn near zero right here? It's like you, you would think that someone that has been um, in a field for a long time, done a lot of uh, experience in it, they'd be like really good at this. They've already uh, gone through the pitfalls, et cetera. But this is finding quite the opposite. I, I wonder if it just washes out at scale. Where like for some people who have really good long experience, it is a good predictor of their success. But for somebody who's been in the same job for 15 years doing the exact same thing 15 years in a row, maybe mm -hmm. not a predictor for them. So like your head's in the oven, your feet are in the freezer, on average, you're fine kind of thing. You're stuck in your old ways, this sort of yeah, thing. So, and so for some people, but then some people, it might be a really good predictor because you have 20 years of really phenomenal experience doing really good work in this space. But when you try to mush them all together and try to understand the population, it washes itself out. Yeah, my, my take on this is my take on this has been not all years of job experience are created equal. Yeah, that's the way. Right? Yeah, and, very true. And so, you, like the 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 <laughs> the justification I have is because I've moved jobs quite a few times, and I say there's a difference between having one year of experience ten times because you're basically doing the same thing every year and 10 years of real experience. And so I think this is another way of showing that it's not like it's showing that job experience is a negative predictor. It's just showing that it goes up much more incrementally than people might imagine. Structured interviews is really interesting as well. So like you get this like uh, panel interview and obviously they're picking up on some aspects that are not being picked up on other things. So I don't know if that's like culture fit or that they're seeing something in those interviews that just uh, is unique. Yeah, because well, okay, cool. Oh, sorry, I have a question for both of you on this regard. If you've been on the receiving end of structured interviews, because I'm pretty 
pretty adamant about doing this when I interview people to be on my teams in the past. And I've always had people give me feedback that they hate it. They hate the structured interview. Yeah. And, but it happens to be quite predictive. And so I'm wondering from your experience, do you feel that way about the structured interviews having gone through them perhaps, or, and do you think that there's a balance to be played there? I haven't hated them when I've been part of them, but that, that's, that's like a, a one data point kind of thing. I assume there's there's ways to do them well and there's ways to do them that are more difficult too. So like not not every structured interview is the same too. Not everyone is doing them the same way because it's a it's a it's a wide term to say structured interview. It's not like there's like, like a trademarked way to do it and you've got to do the exact same thing every time. It's people have their own interpretations too. Yeah, <laughs> I see your note there, Cole. Maybe, maybe it is you. <laughs> I was trying to be polite. <laughs> no, I think, um, yeah, I. I don't know. Yeah, I'd want to know more about how you're doing them, Cole. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good point that there is a spectrum of uh, structuredness that an yeah. interview could fall on that we don't really talk about. I, I personally uh, hate them so much. Like, I try and blow them up whenever I was like searching for a job, try and go off topic and this sort of thing. And like, it always kind of made this way uh, not super successful in these sort of interviews. I don't know. I th I think it just judging from your my experience, Scott, that you're more of the norm than maybe perhaps Richard is. It, it, it's it's just it's not a high fidelity situation to real mm -hmm. life. Like how often when you're talking to another human being, are they like, "All right, we finished with question number one. Are you ready to move into question number two? Question number two is da da da. da. It's like it just feels very canned. Very canned, and uh, it, it's really foreign in the way that they want you to answer a lot of questions. Typically, like what they call the star model, or give me a situation, give me a behavior, give me a task, result, action, result. Yeah, yeah, whatever it is. And it, it when you're talking about your experience, it, it's not typically that's not how I would organize it mentally. For me, it's it's much more of a experiential sort of like this is a story I'm trying to tell, not necessarily like. Here's three lines on setting up the background. Here's three lines on like what I did. And here's three lines of the impact. Just interviewing in general is a very kind of unique and specialized behavior. Yeah, I think we talked about this on our last Cole and Scott episode where it's like a subset of the human experience that's like nothing else. No, and there's so much writing on it too, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not even like a, it's definitely not a natural experience. It's one that's definitely like a, a two-sided game that's being played. And, and there's a lot at stake in, in a very big way. The, the interesting thing about this too is like, none of these are great. They're, they're good, but they're not like, <laughs> we haven't figured out exactly what makes this work yet. And I think there's, there's probably something else out there still left to be found by, by biopsychologists who are looking at this. Because it's, um, we might've found like a C plus way to do interviewing. And like the A plus way is still hiding out there somewhere. That's, or maybe that's it's a... not even interviewing at all. Maybe it's something else. What would that be? What does that, what does that mean? My, if I were to place my bet, I think biodata is the most untapped area yeah. that's often not studied, but could lead to some very generous insights to be gained. But if I, had, if I could do another career over again, because I don't really want to go that direction now in my career, but I would have gone into that direction and started like an assessment company around biodata. Probably the yeah. most fast. Oh, oh please. I was gonna say probably probably the most fat one of the more fascinating things I read this this is a long time ago uh, that for the uh, I'm gonna I'm get a lot of this wrong but for the Air Force uh, pilot entrance exam 
the one question which was more predictive than the rest of the entire assessment was, uh, did you build model airplanes as a child? So like th this predicted uh, pilot success over and beyond. And like, there's all sorts of elements there. Like one interest in planes, right? At an early yeah. age, probably mechanical intrinsic motivation, intrinsic motivation. And there's probably some sort of like, um, the child could see themselves in this little toy plane flying it around, you know, like all, there's, uh, it's very fascinating sort of psychological concept. Yeah. I, I love those kind of anecdotes. I wonder if that is like a, like a multiple peak scenario too, though, where like you will get a subset of people who are good at flying planes by asking that question, but you will inherently disinclude people that also might be really good at flying planes that just didn't do that. But by doing so, you get the sample that's important to you. But maybe there's another question out there that if you asked it, you could get a totally separate peak of pe people that just didn't build model planes. Like I'm even thinking about like some of the socioeconomic factors of, did you have access to model building? Like that's, oh, a, yeah. that's an expensive hobby. You know, there, there's, some, there's some factors there, but it's, if you're trying to be quick and hire people and find the right subset as fast as you can, like a lot of recruiters are, going with the model plane question would do it. But there might be another like hidden peak of people somewhere else in the, in the market. That's, that's so model. true. Model boats for Navy selection. Model. <laughs> Just models. It's all models. <laughs> it's all about the models. It, we're back to people analytics. It's all about building those models, right? There we go. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll do a little switcheroo. Like I, I got to looking at the what we had planned, and uh, I, I lost interest in it. But check out this article. This article essentially argues that uh, it's, it's the case for weird social in VR slash XR. A vision for social superpowers beyond meat space, which I don't really know what that is. But essentially, they're arguing that uh, VR technology could replace, uh, say, like Zoom or Google Meet, et cetera. But we're not being creative enough. A lot of the VRs, essentially, mm, recreation of boardrooms. Boardroom. So a bunch of people come in, they have like sit in their chairs in VR where you could be flying a model plane you could be on the moon you could be on a pirate ship we could be a meeting and we need to get weird in how we're thinking about it and to get the creative juices flowing i, I love this idea I, I was um so i was one of the early teams i got to test some of the the work vr stuff when i was at facebook at the time and because um, i advocated for our people analytics team to get in there and get in early and we, we all got headsets to test it was, it was fascinating kind of early day stuff but our, our people analytics team we all logged in and they had like a big screen. It was like a Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you know, that big room with the glass walls that looked a little bit like that. It was kind of neat because we had people from London, people from Austin, people from San Francisco all sitting together. And nine out of 10 of us picked like what we look like. I picked glasses and a polo and jeans. Yeah. We're all sitting there in the circle. This one guy logs in and he looks like a space pimp. He has like a big bow on, <laughs> he has this big hat, his glasses. And he was like, oh, I thought we were doing something funny. And so we sat through this meeting with all of us looking relatively standard and he was just out there, but it was memorable and I got a real kick out of it. And so, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for that, like very different stretch your brain kind of ways of doing meetings. Um, it's just a matter of getting the equipment out to people. Yeah, maybe uh, Zuck is right. Maybe just a little premature in his idea of this uh, uh, meta space. But like you hear these like stats that are like, Oh, oh! People are more engaged when, you, like, you have a walking meeting or something like that. Like, imagine recreating that online, and like, people are, I don't know, flying around or something like that. To give a to give a lo-fi version, Zoom actually has a couple things. If you look in the top right corner for the host, you can select immersive view, 
an immersive view puts you into like funny portraits or on a ski lift together or in a classroom. And I, I did a couple of meetings where I started them that way. Just like the first couple of minutes, like I would start up that way and then people would pop in and everybody starts laughing like right away because you're sitting next to someone on a ski lift or whatever it might be. And I, so I, I think there's there are these like Zoom is already kind of touching that metaverse space. And you get this very different feel of like, what does it mean to be near somebody or interact with somebody? Yeah. Or if you're, if you're sitting next to them on a ski lift, just your little face, it like takes out your background. You feel like weirdly close to people. And it's like, that's, that's an odd thing to feel by yourself in your room talking to a screen. But it's still, you, you get some of those feelings about being near people in, in different ways. So would highly recommend Immersive View on Zoom sometime. Okay. Why do you check this out? Well, I was, I was thinking about that. I'm still hung up on whatever meat space is. Like, is this like human beings are made of meat and that's where the space that we're in? <laughs> I think that's what they're going uh, for, a disgusting one. Yeah, maybe not something to go searching after. Yeah, I, I hear you. Yeah, you're not going to like the search results that you find. Um, <laughs> I wonder, I wonder if this work. could like solve some of the like Zoom fatigue that we hear about. Like, uh, you know, if you sit through several Zoom meetings, it, it's it just wears on you like uh we, we've talked about this in the past but like if you're now on a ski lift <laughs> does that alleviate some of this and make the work day more enjoyable yeah, or, or does it foment innovation well one of the neat like, things about on, that, like, big room full yeah. of people when you walk around you could actually hear sounds change so it knew you were close to somebody it'd be louder so that kind of thing like if you're in a big conference room you could go in a corner and talk to somebody you could mm -hmm. do some of that stuff in the VR space too, which was, I, I thought that was fascinating, the kind of audio spatial recognition. And so if you didn't want to hear somebody, you could walk away from them and they go really quiet. <laughs> when, see, when I've, I've seen that research about like walking meetings being more successful, I, I, mean, I didn't attribute it to the fact that, you know, people were moving around. I, I assumed it was like the physiological effects that walking has on like your heart rate and like how you feel as a human being. And I wonder if that could be recreated in the VR environment. Kind of like when, when you said the thing about model planes earlier, Scott, my first thought was, what does a model plane signify? It signifies somebody who's got, you know, intrinsic passion and motivation around this. It's not the plane itself that's the signifier. It's the secondary benefit, much like the physiological effects of walking around. Mm -hmm. Or perhaps just being outside. Yeah, or being well. outside. Yeah, or just somewhere more interesting than in your cube or your your open office desk. Uh, yeah, that comes back to like the thesis of this article that like why why would we have like a universe of opportunities or options when what we do is just recreate a sterile four wall room with a whiteboard? All right, I think we've uh, <laughs> we meet that we've space. Definitely. Yeah, <laughs> it's not my space. It's meat space. Meat, meat space. Tee this one up, Scott. Okay. Um, so I I came across this this machine learning conference called Nor a Norm Core conference, and it was basically a conference that where you only talk about unsexy topics, uh, like how to how to build machine learning models. And so I put together a post. And it, I knew it was a it was a mouse trap with a piece of cheese in it because I'm like I'm gonna put this post out there and the first person who's gonna comment is gonna be Richard Rosenau and Richard Rosenau delivered oh, yeah. and so I wanted to formally put this out there Richard do you want to co-start a Normcore People Analytics conference with me I like the people want to know 100 percent 
I, I think this is <laughs> tremendous. I, I am I am tired of highbrow case studies that only work in certain scenarios. I, I am tired of big wins that don't actually end up as wins outside of the podcast you listen to them on. I would love some really boring tactical, let's get together and solve some stuff. Yeah, sign me up immediately. The, the other person I'll throw out there, which you should interview, is uh, uh, Ben Tish over at Facebook. He had an article a while back. It was, um, it was like, what, not why? He's like, he wanted more articles in this, like, what are we doing? Like, how do you actually do this work in people analytics? Because there's a lot of why we need it. And there's a lot of why it's important and how to build your case for it. But then like tactically, we're leaving people to fend for themselves. So yeah, I, I'm very fired up about this. If he's on board, I'm on board. Ben, sure. we're calling you out, buddy. Come on, <laughs> join us. Look at him. He, he does good stuff on sports analytics too. So you can, you can pick his brain there. But yeah, this, this Norm, Normcore tech conference, Normcore, it's a strange word uh, for people analytics. I, I think that's needed, needed immediately. So one of the things we, we've actually discussed uh, Dr. John Sullivan's articles a few times here on the podcast. I, I don't know, I, I think he puts really good provocative content out there. And so we, we just kind of, you know, shine some light on what he's doing. But he said within the context of what's been going on the last few weeks and months around, you know, tech firms and, and specifically doing layoffs of really, really talented individuals that for the first time really in the last 20 years, the U.S. talent pool is it's going to be easy to pick off some really talented people. And, and so I was thinking about this partially in regards to, you know, what's going on with Richard, but partially he put some things out there that I hadn't really thought of. And he said, you know, if you move quickly, you will be their first choice and you'll be, you know, the ones that you're able to pick up candidates so easily. And so I think a lot of times when people are talking about or thinking about a recession, they're thinking of like, oh God, we better pull the drawbridge up. No more people in. But this actually might be the most, you know, strategic time to be hiring rather than the alternative. I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts about this? Yeah, I think if you can manage to get off cycle with your recruiting, it's tremendous. I mean, it's, it's a time where you can really, because even the people that are staying in a lot of the companies are, are still looking because they're nervous. So they just saw their colleagues and mm -hmm. their best friends or people leave. So I, if you could be hiring right now, that's, that's tremendous. The trouble is you, like, you have to have a business model that allows you to hire during a recession or during a time of downturn. And it's, um, that takes a lot of work or you have to have some kind of like anti-recession business model that lets you still kind of thrive or prepare for times like this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I worked for a, a company one time where the CEO was kind of a, a radical individual and he, he didn't believe in the concept of forecasting. He said that I don't believe in forecasting. I only believe in the past, which I was like, okay, you've got my attention. Please tell me more. And his thought was, if you go back into the past and you just find what everyone did when this kind of thing happened before and you do the opposite, you're more likely to thrive <laughs> strategically. And so if I, I bet you if we were to have him on the podcast, he would say, now is the time to be hiring the most talented people because no one else is. I have an article here that uh, hits on that almost exactly. Like, so these people analyzed uh, companies' orientations during the last, uh, you know, 2008 credit crunch financial crisis. Essentially, found that organizations that invested in R and D and corporate social responsibility while curtailing their workforce fared better than those that just laid off people. So, actually, investing in your technology 
getting ahead of the curve, looking around corners, this sort of stuff, benefited them when they finally came out of the recession. And uh, to Richard's point earlier, talk about like a perfect time to pick up an SDE that you probably wouldn't get otherwise, especially for like non-tech companies. Yeah, it's, it's something I wonder if we're seeing a true market reduction in the labor force, or are we seeing the popular companies lay off people? And I, I wonder about that, like is, I, I truly don't know. Like, I just don't know if it's a widespread phenomenon now, or is it just the media is picking up these incredibly high profile front page Facebook lays off people, you know, because that, that's a mm-hmm. sexy title. That's a, that's a big company that people are going to click on. Like I, I is, I don't want to name another company and make them the opposite side of that. But I, I think like the, are we seeing this across all companies in the US right now? Or is it just kind of a couple of these tech companies that kind of got too big too fast and, and needed to correct? I think yeah, there's I an think... ONA study to be had about layoff <laughs> contagion, you know? Yeah, and especially industry layoff contagion, because I, I think there's also something where like layoffs make sense financially for some companies where it's like, hey, everyone else is laying people off. Now's your time to do it to see the stock price increase, those sorts of things. Like you don't want to put that on somebody or, or assume intent or malintent. But I think there is financial advice out there that some companies are given that kind of like it's already raining, might as well have it rain a little bit more and you'll get hidden in the mix. So it's, it's always hard to tell what's actually required and what's being done to make financial changes happen too. It's also true that employees bounce back and forth between companies within the industry. So like, uh, it's a reason why Silicon Valley is a thing. Like all these tech workers live in the same space and all the companies are there together. And they also like benefit from each other's uh, sharing of knowledge as well. So like, I, I love the point that it could just be like a tech space phenomenon and very high profile tech. Uh, but I mean, it could be a place where I guess the opposite of tech would be like say interns or something like that. An insurance company could pick up some really, really good talent, get ahead of the curve themselves. Insurance companies batting above their weight. There we go. Well, <clears throat> I think that's all we have for today. <laughs> um, this was definitely an interesting one. <laughs> yeah, we, we've got a lot of random directions uh, on directionally correct. Um, <laughs> uh, Richard, thank you for joining us, man. Uh, Scott, any any final words before we wrap this thing up? Richard, it's, it's so good to meet you. Uh, how can folks get in touch with you uh, if they want to reach out? Yeah, uh, LinkedIn is best. In slash Richard Rose now. You can find me on there. I'm on Twitter. I, I kind of let my Twitter die for a little while. I'm, I'm debating if I, if I kind of restart that at some point. But LinkedIn's Don't the best do it. spot. Don't do yeah, it. Let, let it die. <laughs> the, edit, the editors say, say, let it die. Uh, so more, more to come there. But LinkedIn's definitely the way to find me. Awesome. Well, Richard, thanks so much for joining us. You've been listening to Direction and Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott and Richard Rosenau. Thank you, guys. As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization.